Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, Rackman Review listeners. Before we get to the show, I'd like to tell you about a survey we're conducting to find out more from our listeners about what you think of this show and what you'd like to hear more of. You can find the survey at ft.com slash Rachman survey, and we'll put the link in our show notes. If you complete the survey, you'll have a chance to win a pair of Bose Quiet Comfort earbuds. We appreciate your feedback. Hello, and welcome to the Rachman Review. I'm Gideon Rachman, Chief Foreign Affairs Commentator of the Financial Times. February the 24th will mark a year since Russia invaded Ukraine. With the fighting still raging, we're devoting this month's podcasts to the war. My guest this week is Hein Humans, professor at the University of Rochester in the United States. His academic specialism is war termination theory. In other words, how wars end. So, what are the prospects for peace in Ukraine? So I study war because it's terrible. And because it's truly terrible. I was raised, you know, in the Netherlands and with you know family members who had fought and who had died in, this, in the Second World War in the camps and you know and elsewhere, it's going to take a lot of dying and a lot of death and destruction before both sides say, okay, we kind of, we can anticipate what the war is going to end like. And like, and we're going to accept that and we're going to make a deal on, on that basis. I mean, I don't see any clear end to this war. That was Hein Humans explaining why he's interested in war and why he's gloomy about the prospect that the conflict in Ukraine will end anytime soon. That's a view shared by many people in the American government. In fact, I was alerted to Professor Human's work by a contact who works in the American government and who cited it as something that his colleagues had been studying as they try to see how this war might be brought to a close. Unfortunately, the Ukraine war, as you'll hear, bears many of the hallmarks of a conflict that's destined to go on for some time. I began our discussion by asking Hein Humans to give me an outline of what war termination theory is all about. Let me start with a very basic kind of introduction to the topic. There is a war because both sides ask more than the other is willing to give. Very simple. So for a war to end, the minimum war aims of at least one side must change. And then the question you got to ask is, what causes those war aims to change? War actually does something that we cannot do in peacetime. It lets you see on the battlefield how strong you really are, how resolved, and how strong your opponent is. And in addition, you know the attitude and behavior of potential allies of either side. So one of the basic characteristics of war is that it provides information. So if we both know how the war is going to end and more or less what the outcome is going to be, then it makes no sense for us to keep on fighting because we're just throwing away lives and costs. So we have to come to the stage where both sides more or less know what the outcome is going to be. And we're not there yet. There is an additional stage. And after that, certain leaders may not want to terminate the war because they're afraid that the loss will cost them their lives. 
Do you think, however, that, or does sort of war theory tell you that once it becomes more than two parties involved, even if the other parties, you know, are not directly involved, that that makes it less likely or harder to end? I mean, some people are trying to pitch this as, oh, the United States versus Russia, which is a big mistake. This is not a proxy war. The support of the West is crucial, but it is not on behalf of the direct interest of the United States and the West. It is certainly on behalf of the indirect interests here, but the security architecture in Europe and the whole world. But the people are doing the fighting and the dying, and whose interests are most directly at stake are the Ukrainians. Most wars last five months. No, that's the median. 50% of wars last about five months. But there is no smooth drop-off. Most of them end relatively quickly, and then some go on for a long time. Is there a particular reason why, if it goes beyond five months, it's likely to continue for quite a while yet? Well, some people would say yes, because it makes clear that this is a war caused by a commitment problem, that no peace deal will stick. But more generally, it's because the underlying dynamic is different from the short wars. So let me give you a very simple kind of example. First World War. Everybody in Britain knows that it started in 1914 and ended in 1918. Unfortunately, not all my undergrads do. But one of the interesting things is that in November 1914, there is a count council in Germany with the chancellor, with the Kaiser William the Last, as I like to refer to him, and the chief of staff, where they all agree they can't win. Now, they keep fighting. What happened there is that they had this Schlieffen plan, this brilliant plan, it was supposedly designed to win the war quickly. It failed, and therefore they should have ended the war something very different about the First World War in that at very Crown Council, these leaders already recognized that in case of failure, there would be a domestic revolution and they could not tolerate that possibility and therefore kept fighting. So here's an example of why a war should end quickly, but sometimes doesn't. I mean, I think, you know, we talk about the First World War, but when you listen to what Putin says, the war that preoccupies him is the Second World War and it probably preoccupies a lot of Europeans. And we know how that one ended. That ended with the total defeat of Germany. But is one of the complications here that in a nuclear age, that's just not possible. A total defeat is not going to happen to Russia. Yeah, that's interesting. The thing that is striking is that there is a cap on Ukrainian aims. They will not go beyond the borders of 1991. So there is no incentive or there's no even belief or need or just there would be no sanity in the idea of decisively defeating Russia inside Russia. You have to defeat decisively the Russians in Ukraine and push them back. Whereas this is not the case for the Russians. Their war aims are unlimited. They want to take over entire Ukraine and perhaps even be realistic about that, subsequently Moldova and other parts of the former Russian Empire, whether it be the Tsarist or the communist one. But one of the things one hears at the moment to sort of push back against the idea that this war is going to go on and on and on and on is at least the Ukrainians say, look, we need Ukrainian victory. Alessia Vasilenko, who I interviewed last week, says we've got to win by the summer. And they seem to believe that they can win a military victory against Russia. And I mean, just for the sake of argument, say that happens, does that then not bring the war to an end without this convergence of views of what's possible and so on? If Russia believes that it can still mobilize and has another trick up its sleeve, it won't do it. Or they may try very risky strategies, as the Germans did in the First World War. I think there is a chance that Ukrainians will push forward during the spring if they have integrated the tanks, but they may have to wait until they get the planes, if they get the planes to do the combined arms uh, warfare at which NATO excels and 
which the Russians simply can't do, and which is a massive force multiplier. It may take a little bit longer. But I mean, it takes two sides to end the war, is the fundamental point. And the question is, why would Russia, why would Putin ever agree? I mean, in my opinion, if he gives up Crimea, it will cost him his personal safety, you know, maybe his life, and he may be thrown in jail. It's just too much of a sacrifice. He can't sell that to the people. So he's not going to do it. I suppose what the Ukrainians would respond is that may not be within his choice. He may just lose on the battlefield. Well, the Germans, quote-unquote, lost on the battlefield and they kept fighting another four years. And at some moments, they became very close to winning, right? So it's a somewhat naive perspective because I think that Russia has plenty of hardware and mobilization potential to keep fighting for a long time. You know, every war has its ups and downs. The question is, do the Russians think that they still have a chance to score the necessary victory? So, I mean, if they push back the Russians all the way to the 1991 borders, the Ukrainians are going to say, we're willing to settle. And it would be genuine. I don't see why the Russians would ever accept it, to repeat myself. I mean, Putin may be removed, but then there will be a more hawkish leader who will replace him. The Russians are not stupid. I mean, they are willing, and Putin is certainly not stupid either. He's listening to new information, and he's updating, but he says, basically, if this doesn't work, try something else. I mean, there's rumor now that he's trying to force the Russians to have another go at Kiev. And the military is saying, we can't do that and we don't want to do it, but that Putin is insisting. He is just trying different strategies. He knows some things don't work. This is why Wagner is allowed to do this horrible thing with the prisoners. He knows some things don't work. He's not stupid, but he's trying other things. So give us a sense of what are these resources that the Russians can mobilize? Because early in the war... There were optimistic noises. Admittedly, they hadn't yet fully mobilized their population. They still haven't. That sanctions were hitting their industry, their industrial base, that they were running out of ammunition, they were running out of semiconductors. So just explain to me why that's wrong, that you think the Russians can just keep fighting for a very long time. Well, as you say, they have the manpower base, so they can do mobilization. They had something like 15,000 tanks. I know 2,000 of them are kind of gone now, but they can patch together another two, 3,000 tanks if they want to. They may get plenty of ammunition from the North Koreans or elsewhere. They can dig in. They can actually you know, try to recreate trench warfare if they want to. And many countries have fought on in what looked like desperate situations for a long time because they could motivate the people. And because they thought there was some chance of realistic victory, even a very small one. He can remobilize. He can actually go on total war economy. There are many options. There has to be some notion that he says, this is going to be too costly. I don't want to do this anymore. So to put it the other way, what about Ukrainian staying power? I noticed that Robert Gates and Condoleezza Rice argued recently that time is on Russia's side. What do you make of that argument? So, well, that's interesting, particularly in the context of your earlier question. One of the reasons why Putin keeps fighting and why he can be hopeful and think that he might pull it off in the long run is because he thinks that the West will crumble. So the more people who say, like, oh, we should negotiate now, the long term is favorable to Russia, the more Putin can hope that the West will, in the end, fail to support Ukraine. And if that happens, then Ukraine will lose on the battlefield. So if the war only ends when the two sides aims become compatible, what would it take for that to happen? The aims have to be compatible. The second thing to keep in mind here is that you must believe that any deal you make will stick. So there won't be drastic changes in the future, which will give one side an advantage and they will renege on the deal. That's called the credible commitment problem. Correct. Absolutely correct. And this is what everybody is very worried about, given that Putin already invaded in 2014 and then thought he'd do it again. So what has to happen for the minimum terms of settlement to become compatible, 
is that both sides need to agree on how the war will end. And in that case, another thing that you've studied is the importance of the domestic regime. And is there something about the Russian domestic regime that makes this a political order that's particularly unlikely to end a war, even if the war is going badly? Yes, I do think so. I mean, an interesting thing about the regime is, of course, that Putin is the linchpin. It might be hard to replace him. And that's exactly why he designed a system like that, right? So that he would be irreplaceable because he keeps the factions together and the flow of money to the right people. So he's the linchpin of the regime. And the question is, does Putin have the repressive apparatus of Saddam Hussein, who basically killed the Kurds in the north and the Shiites in the south when he lost the Gulf War? Or is he kind of a regime that cannot fully repress any domestic opposition? There is debate among academics among that. I am still of the belief that while he's pretty repressive and he's switching more to a totalitarian state, he's not there yet. And he's really literally at risk. His life is literally at risk. So he is particularly unwilling to settle in a way that maybe somebody in a democratic system where their lives might not be at risk might settle. That's exactly right. How do you assess the incentives of the Ukrainians? I mean, I suppose we hear from them, and it's difficult to dispute it, that they have no incentive to settle because they feel they're fighting for their freedom and for their statehood. I think that's correct. I think that if Zelensky made a deal which gave up you know, the four annexed areas, I think he might also be removed from office, but he's not going to be killed because he is a war hero and he has a lot of credit and it's very different. He's clearly not the one who's culpable. He's not the one who's responsible for this war. Ukrainians also make a calculation. Is this worth the cost? And the Russians are trying to influence that calculation. The Russians are trying to teach the Ukrainians that the war is going to be very costly by taking other infrastructure and just punishing of civilians. And on the other hand, it's the West, which is telling the Russians, this war is going to be too costly because we have sanctions on you and your complete economy will implode. So this teaching is going on at both sides. But back to the Ukrainians, there's many other kind of examples where states have tried to punish the civilians in the hope to break their will. And in almost all cases, it's had the opposite effect. The will of the people who are getting bombed is hardened. So Russia's pursuing a counterproductive strategy. Somewhat, yeah. But you know, so many countries have been doing this. It's kind of really striking. It's just an example that you see occurring over and over again. I think that the Ukrainians are highly motivated and therefore are willing to tolerate very high costs. I mean, the Kremlin has a very effective propaganda apparatus and is successful in inculcating some belief among the ordinary Russians that this is a just war and thereby driving up the willingness of the Russian people to suffer costs. In the end, I think that the Russians are not willing to suffer as many costs as the Ukrainians are. Obviously, the Ukrainians are not fighting alone. They're fighting with backing from the United States, from the European Union and so on, the UK as well. But... Talking to the Americans, at least, they've been very preoccupied from the beginning by this threat of nuclear escalation. From a kind of theoretical point of view, what does theory tell you about the risk of nuclear escalation? It seems to me that Putin might have tried it early on the war, but he can't do it anymore. I mean, I can tell you one very specific instance in which you might want to do it. First of all, it's not going to be very effective on the battlefield. You're not going to get the mass forces in one place that you can isolate, that you can kill just Ukrainians and no Russians, you know, and therefore swing the tide on the battlefield. It's not going to be particularly useful. If he uses a nuke against a civilian target, I mean, the whole world is going to be against him. You know? And it may take longer to fight, but the whole world will mobilize against him, support the Ukrainians, and there's no way he's going to win. The only way I can see Putin 
use nuclear weapons goes back to this story that I told earlier about the Western allies, and particularly the people in Germany, who are very, very skittish about nuclear weapons. You know, if I were Putin and I thought that my life was at stake, and it looks like I can't get the victory I need in order to stay in office and survive, I might use a test nuclear weapon or a test nuclear explosion to see if my nukes really still work and just scare the heck out of the Germans and everybody in Europe who are then supposedly going to pressure the Ukrainians to lower their demands and settle on terms which are acceptable for Putin. So that's the only strategy that I can see Putin really using nuclear weapons. Okay, so this brings us to another pressure point. I mean, you've explained why the Russians aren't going to give up, why the Ukrainians aren't going to give up. But if the Ukrainians' ability to keep fighting depends on the West not giving up, what is the risk or the possibility of the West losing interest? I'm relatively optimistic about it, but I mean, if Trump wins in 2024, things will change. I think that Great Britain will stand squarely behind Ukraine and many people in the West, but Germany is still vacillating. It's really surprising what they're doing. I just really don't understand the strategy of the plans of Schultz. It makes absolutely no sense what this guy is doing. But if the West decides they're not going to support Ukraine fully anymore, then Ukraine is in a really tough spot and they'll have to dramatically lower their aims. There's no way they're going to push back Russia to the 99 borders. And they may have to accept the four annexed areas as part of Russia forever. So you're saying that in a sense, Russia's best hope is the re-election of Donald Trump? Well, Russia's best hope is breaking up the Western support for Ukraine. And that can happen in a variety of ways, right? I just told you the story about the a nuclear demonstration of just testing a bomb and then scaring the West, Trump getting elected. I mean, it really surprises me. I just read another article uh, in the New York Times about these people who are saying like, oh, Ukraine should negotiate and should make some kind of peace deal. But these people are idiots. I mean, idiots. Do they think that Putin, after he's been successful and shown that he's been a great leader and he won against the mighty NATO alliance and all his force, that he's going to stop? He's not going to come back? What are they drinking? What are they smoking? How can you possibly believe that is true? Particularly if he demonstrates that he can stand up to NATO and the West. How can you think this guy won't come back and ask for more? We know appeasement, right? We know appeasement doesn't work. If you had to predict based on theory and how that applies to what you're seeing unfold before you, how and when it would end, nobody can be sure, obviously. But if you had to look at the situation now and tell me how and when you think this war is going to end, what would your bet be on? Going back to the analogy of the First World War one more time, what really changed attitudes in Germany was the collapse of Bulgaria and Austria-Hungary suing for peace. Then, only then, did the German people find out that the war was lost because Ludendorff had set up a ministry of information saying, we're going to win, we're doing great, we're going to win, we're going to win. And finally, reality and truth hit them smack in the face that they couldn't win and they wouldn't win. And then, of course, they started the revolution. What it will take is for the Russians to realize, for the Russian people, that they can't win this war. This can happen in a variety of ways. There can be a revolt against Putin, which we think is unlikely. There can be secessionist movements in the administrative units in Russia. Or it can be a long kind of peaceful stalemate or ceasefire along the 1991 border where there's occasionally shots fired, but no dramatic incursions and no dramatic battles. It's heartbreaking to say, but it's just bleak, Gideon. Hundreds of thousands of people are going to die. And for really no good reason. I mean, there is a deal available, but Russia can't take it. And the question you've got to ask yourself is why that is. And the answer I'm coming back to is twofold, domestic politics. And 
they still have plans and ideas and you know they think they can teach the Ukrainians some new information or hope that the West will fall apart. That was Hein Humans of Rochester University ending this edition of the Rachman Review. Thanks for listening and please join me again next week.